You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. Dr. Williams is Director of Sports Neurology and Pain Management at the Sports Concussion Institute in Marina del Rey near Los Angeles, California. I think there's a lot of confusion about what amnesia is. Can you help us understand that? You know, amnesia is a very important symptom when we're assessing concussion and concussion severity because it really helps us predict how likely it is that these symptoms will be prolonged or or whether there'll be a more quick resolution of symptoms. But amnesia can be broken up into two different forms. There is retrograde amnesia, and retrograde amnesia refers to some abnormality in, in the ability to remember events that occurred prior to the impact. So let's say someone has a fall and they hit their head on the floor, and you ask them, well, what happened? How did you fall? And they say, well, the last thing I remember was I was walking down the stairs, and, and the next thing I know, you were, you were standing over me, so I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. That, that would be an example of retrograde amnesia. And that retrograde amnesia can be amnesia that involves a period of minutes or seconds prior to the, to the impact or injury, or people can have more severe retrograde amnesia that involves hours or even days prior to the impact. That's less common, but still possible. And then the other kind of amnesia that's discussed is anterograde amnesia, where people have a loss of memory or loss of uh, ability to account for events that occurred after the injury or or after the impact. So an example of anterograde amnesia would be if I see a patient in clinic who says that they suffered a concussion during their game on Friday. It's Monday. I'm seeing them in clinic, and I say, well, what's the next thing you remember after the hit? And they say, you know, I, I really don't remember anything, Dr. Williams. The next thing I remember was this kind of being at home and, and my mom asking me if I was okay or what have you. They tell me that I didn't pass out, and they tell me that I, you know, was a little nauseated and threw up, but I don't remember any of that. That would be an example of anterograde amnesia. They, they couldn't remember events that occurred after the impact. And, and we would distinguish the amnesia from frank memory difficulties. One of the primary symptoms after concussion is difficulty with memory, and that would be an inability to, to learn new information. So retrograde amnesia, anterograde amnesia, and memory difficulties are all separate issues that we want to assess to give us information about the severity of the concussion. So let's say you're a primary care doc, you're evaluating an adolescent who's been in a football game over the weekend, it's now Monday morning, their mom brings them to the office. What kinds of things do you do to evaluate this kid? There's a few things that you want to do in that situation. I would, I would describe that as kind of the subacute scenario. The, the, the injury was a day or a couple of days ago, and the person is being evaluated. The first thing you want to do is query about the persistence of symptoms. Does the person continue to describe any kinds of symptoms as related to the concussion? Are they continuing to have problems with headache? Are they having difficulty with nausea or visual disturbances, blurry vision, loss of vision? any numbness or tingling or weakness or ringing in the ears, any kind of neurologic symptoms whatsoever you want to query for. And if you have those kinds of things, that's very important because we never, ever recommend return to play while the patient is still having symptoms. That's the first criteria to meet prior to clearing a person to return to any physical activity. So you want to query about symptoms. And then you also want to do a good neurologic examination. 
because if they had any abnormalities on physical examination, particularly the neurologic examination, then you're going to be much more worried about, you know, significant problems and, and consider diagnostic imaging and, and so on and so forth. So those things are important with respect to the patient. And then you also want to discuss issues with the parent or other caregivers. Has there been any change in their personality? Is there emotional ability? Are they having difficulty sleeping? Are there things that others have recognized that the, the patient or player themselves haven't recognized? So history is hugely important with respect to current symptoms, and the physical examination is very important. And then obviously, to the extent that you can get detailed information regarding the circumstances surrounding the injury, that'll be important as well. Was there loss of consciousness? How long did this person seem to be dazed and confused? Was there retrograde or anterograde amnesia? Was the person assessed by a, a trainer immediately after the event and get information about what their examination was like and what have you? All of that is very important with respect to collecting information regarding the circumstances of the injury, assessing the athlete or the patient at that time, and then that's going to help inform your decisions as to what to do next. Does this person need diagnostic imaging? Does this person need neuropsychological testing? Is this person someone who can return to play, and if so, when? One of the biggest questions that the player often has is, can I practice today, or can I play in our game next week? But you really need all of that information to make some kind of informed decision regarding those issues. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. We are discussing the management of concussions. Dr. Williams, we've been talking a lot about sports-related concussions. Would your strategy here change if, say, it's an elderly patient in a nursing home? You get called and you have to evaluate a patient who's fallen. Same sort of thing or different? Well, I think that many of the same principles are absolutely going to apply. You know, in an elderly patient in that situation, I would also be interested in what may have preceded the event. Did they fall because they passed out or did they fall because they tripped? You know, is there a cardiac etiology? Is there a cerebrovascular etiology? That kind of thing. So there are some other issues that we'd obviously need to take into consideration. But if we can establish that, let's say, there was an accidental fall and there was a concussion related to that and symptoms related to that, then I would approach it in much the very same way. Obviously, in many cases, the elderly will be taking certain kinds of medications that may place them at risk for falls or at risk for concussion because of drowsiness or motor consequences or manifestations. They may be on certain medications that put them at risk for bleeding after a head injury if they're on blood thinning medication. So the threshold for diagnostic imaging is going to be lowered in that population. But in terms of assessing the concussion itself, the kinds of symptoms that the patient may experience and describe, and the kinds of things we're looking at on physical examination to inform our decision-making, they're very similar. Well, let's talk about another thing that's puzzled me in this whole issue is what role do seizures play in the management treatment of concussions? Do they go together? That's a very interesting question, this issue of seizures and concussions. It turns out that people can have a seizure right at the time of a concussion or right at the time of a head injury. It's not that uncommon. Some estimates are that as many as one in every 70 people who have a concussion will also have some kind of post-concussive seizure. But seizures, remember, are, you know, they're very concerning events. They are events that get a lot of attention, and rightly so. 
But it turns out that the presence of a seizure at the time of the impact or at the time of the concussion has very little prognostic value. It does not necessarily increase the patient's risk of developing epilepsy. It doesn't necessarily indicate that there's some significant structural abnormality that's occurred or what have you. And I'm talking primarily in the adolescent and adult population. That may be a little bit different in the elderly population. But if the, if the seizure occurs at the time of the event, it's something that needs to be noted. It's something that needs to be evaluated as a part of the overall syndrome and the overall situation. But it's not as significant a prognostic factor as you would think. Because you certainly would. I mean, everybody gets more upset if there's a seizure involved, it seems. Absolutely. Now, a seizure in the recovery phase or a few days after the event is a different story. I think that is a much more significant prognostic factor. And, and there is a slight increase in risk of development of epilepsy if the seizure occurs in those situations. You're going to be much more worried about the development of subdural hematoma or some other kind of structural abnormality that, which may, that may have occurred at the time of the injury. And that's a, a bit of a different story. But a seizure right at the time of the event, again, is less worrisome than you might think. It's dramatic for sure. It's scary for sure. But you know, the good thing is that we can reassure people that that doesn't mean that they have epilepsy. They don't need to be put on anticonvulsant medications. This is something that's not terribly uncommon, and it usually doesn't predict that they're going to have long-term consequences. So maybe the best way to think about it is almost like a febrile seizure? In a way. In a way, that's right. It's something that in many ways is similar because it may be an event that's occurred as a result of some physiologic phenomenon that is an acute and isolated event. And once that syndrome or process is over, there's no significant risk that this is going to be a, a lifelong issue. So that one seizure at the moment of a concussion certainly doesn't buy you a lifelong course of anticonvulsant medication. Absolutely. In fact, I, I wouldn't even start the person on an anticonvulsant in that scenario. So again, assuming a normal neurologic examination afterward, assuming no abnormalities on diagnostic imaging and resolution of symptoms, the person doesn't even need to be put on anticonvulsants temporarily. There's no evidence that there's any value in doing that. And again, there's no evidence that that one concussive seizure predisposes them to development of epilepsy thereafter. Well, that's helpful information. So given that information, if you have a patient who has had a seizure in the context of a concussion, you're now being evaluated by the primary care physician, it sounds like that one seizure doesn't necessarily even mean that you need a neurology consultation. They may not. I think what they need is a good neurologic examination, and certainly the primary care physician is able to do that. I would probably image a person who had a seizure at the time of impact. And again, that would help identify whether there's any structural abnormality that uh, may have been pre-existing and kind of was made manifest by the seizure or the impact and also identify any structural abnormality that would have occurred at the time of the impact. But it doesn't necessarily require a neurologic assessment. Remember, these concussion episodes are so frequent and so common that it's very important for primary care physicians to be comfortable assessing them, uh, evaluating patients who've had concussions. I think that it's not required that the patient have a neurologic examination in that situation if those criteria are met. A normal neurologic exam, normal diagnostic imaging, one isolated event at the time of the concussion. So you had mentioned about hematomas. How common do you see those after a concussion? 
Hematomas after concussion are fairly uncommon. You know, there are certain kinds of things that would kind of predict that some kind of lesion may be present on physical examination at the time of the concussion and by history. If the person has significant nausea and vomiting, they have, you know, bruising, hematomas or what have you, or evidence of skull fracture, that kind of thing, those things predict and are associated with the increased likelihood that there's some kind of intracranial lesion like a hematoma. But in, in the overwhelming majority of cases with concussion and mild traumatic brain injury, CAT scan and or MRI is going to be normal. So I think that the development of a hematoma is a fairly uncommon event, but the level of or index of suspicion is going to be raised in the presence of loss of consciousness, vomiting, severe headache, abnormalities on physical examination, and abnormalities on neurologic testing. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Vernon Williams. We've been discussing diagnosis and management of concussions. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 